is that uh, Jesus gave all the information that the disciples needed, all the lessons that they needed um, early on in his ministry. It wasn't like he was withholding anything, but through those three years, it was like they continued to go back to the same lessons, the same lessons, the same lessons, the same truths, and and reinforcing them. And these lessons now were being reinforced again. These lessons that have been taught to his disciples over and over and over again, they're being reinforced now in preparation for what would happen when they would reach Jerusalem together. And the first of these three lessons that we read and studied about or through last week, they were on, if you remember, forgiveness, faithfulness, and thankfulness to have a heart of gratitude in all things. And the fourth lesson today, which I said we're going to study about this morning, is on being prepared. Now, as I mentioned last week, these fundamental lessons, I want to just bring an aspect of application, I think a a sense of realness to it, um, so that they're just not existential out there for us to kind of meditate upon. And we should meditate upon God's Word, but more than that. And so, as I mentioned last week, these fundamental lessons were important for Jesus' disciples then, and man, they they are so important for us today. And, and, and even though we, we all know what it means to forgive, and we were talking about this in detail in our home group on Wednesday about these things, and, and even though we know what it means to forgive and what, what it means to be a faithful servant, you know, it's, it's okay to have, it's one thing to have faith, but to, it can't be apart from faithfulness. So we, we understand that, and we understand also what it means to be thankful, and even we know what it means to be prepared for the Lord's return. The truth of the matter is, is we also understand that the application of these fundamental things uh, that we're continuing to be taught in our everyday life are, are, are sometimes difficult in, in execution, difficult in application. Therefore, um, we must always have a teachable spirit. We must always have a willing heart to apply these principles whenever the opportunity arises. And we were even told as we were reading through last week that sometimes the opportunity is a repeated thing over and over and over again, all in the same day. Um, maybe even with the same person, like with forgiveness. You know, Jesus said, even if someone sins against you the same, in the same day, you know, 490 times, forgive them. And so we see that there's opportunities that will arise. And so ultimately, we see that with these fundamentals is that they must be an intricate part of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ, of this new creation that we become in him. And so it's one thing, in other words, to understand... And to know how we're to forgive, know how, um, um, uh, who we're to forgive, and know when we're for, to forgive. <clears throat> but it can be very difficult to actually forgive like God has forgiven us when we're faced with the opportunity for, to forgive someone who's offended us when someone's hurt us. There's challenges in that. There's feelings, right? <clears throat> Likewise, it's one thing to understand and know that, um, to know exactly what Christian faithfulness means you have good doctrine, you can have good theology, in other words, as a Christian. Um, uh, But in in our daily walk, to walk daily in faithfulness can be very hard, can be very difficult when the task seems menial or when it's something that we don't really want to do or when we're called in regards to service from the Lord to serve someone who we don't really want to serve can be challenging. And it's one thing, again, to understand and know what we should do, <clears throat> know that we should have a grateful heart as we consider how God has been merciful and gracious 
and done wonderful things for each of us, but giving thanks in all things and in every situation as we're instructed in Scripture to do can be very difficult to do. So once again, uh, this morning as we now move into this last fundamental that Christ is teaching in this chapter, I would pray that God, like disciples, ask that God would give us faith. You know, Jesus is speaking to them about forgiveness, and the disciples' response was, Lord, give us faith. Increase our faith. Pray that God would do the same for us. Pray that he would give us faith, that he would increase our faith um, so that um, we can um, be not only hearers of his word, but doers of his word, to have a teachable spirit, um, especially as we move on into this lesson of preparedness, because the three fundamentals that we read about last week and studied to it are really a foundation for this fourth and final principle that we read here. They're not separate in and of themselves. And so this morning as we pray and begin to read, I also want to lift up um, another one of the churches in our community. Uh, There's the Vineyard Church in our community, and um, the Pastor Luke is um, the, the pastor there. And so uh, let's pray for our time together and also pray for the, uh, our brothers and sisters who are believers in Christ at the Vineyard Church and for Pastor Luke. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you, God, um, for the work that you're doing here in our church, for what you're doing in our hearts and in our minds today as we worship you and study your word. Lord, we, we want revelation from you. We want... Uh, um, you to speak truth to our hearts and minds. And Lord, we know that that'll take place if you're the one teaching us. So I pray, God, first that I would just be the vessel, Lord, that you would fill me, uh, gift me with uh, um, a gift of teaching, and Lord, that we would all have the ears to hear and to receive what you speak through your words to us this morning. God, as we study and learn more about what you tell us in regards to your return, Lord, may we be excited for your return. May we live and look uh, for your return with, with anticipation and expectancy. And Lord, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters who are gathering together also this morning at the Vineyard Church here in town. Lord, we pray for Pastor Luke. I ask God that he would um, not be tempted, Lord, to interject any opinions into his study. Lord, that he would teach Um, your word in truth to the people who come to hear from you, to know about you more. I pray, God, that you would fill them with your spirit. Lord, that you would bless their time together as they meet, to be encouraged and to know more about you. And God, that they would be thoroughly equipped as they study your word um, for every good work that you call them to. Lord, I also think of Rosie real quick, who's the youth leader there. And I know he's got young children and a new wife, and so we pray, God, that um, you would also equip him for the youth ministry that he is faithful to serve in. And Lord, for the other servant leaders there and each people, maybe even new people come into that church this morning, Lord, I pray that they wouldn't leave without hearing the gospel message and having an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we're grateful that your son Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that the debt that we owed might be paid. And Lord, that because of that, we have forgiveness and salvation into eternal life. That you've taken these lives that were once dead and have once again breathed um, new life into us. Father, help us to walk in that new life. Help us to be prepared for for today and for tomorrow and Lord, certainly for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read verse 20. It says, now when... 
when he, he, he was asked, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, listen, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, <clears throat> nor will they say, see here and see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And then he said to his disciples, so he first directs his attention, and we get to keep the, the flow of the conversation here to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. So if he's speaking to the, the Pharisees again, and then as is accustomed to Jesus, he's, he's, he's using this as an, as an opportunity to then teach his disciples so that they might be prepared. And he says to them, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And I don't know about you, if I was one of those disciples at that time and I understood what Jesus was speaking about, I think my heart would have sunk in with me and, and I got a, a kind of a lump of sadness from hearing that. And we'll speak about it because this is what these guys were looking for. This is what they were waiting for is the kingdom of God to be established for the Son of Man to come. And in verse 23, he says, and, and they will say to you, look here, and look there, and he says, do not go after them or follow them. For as lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day um, in regards to the coming of, of, of Christ, the Son of, of the Son of Man. But first, 25, <clears throat> okay, so, so this, is, this, is, uh, this but is a parenthesis that kind of fits in the middle of what the, the, the Pharisees asked and what Jesus just told them, and this is a reason for why they're not going to see the kingdom of God, um, even though the desire to see even just one day. He says, but first, before all these things happen, for you see me coming in glory. In other words, he, Jesus, the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Wow. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, verse 30, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in his house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. And remember, she, she longed for the life that she had. She looked back and she was instantly um, um, turned into a pillar of salt, right? And it's this idea of longing and, and for what was and not looking forward for what God has. And so in verse 33, Jesus says, and here's the key, I think, to, to everything that we're reading here in regards to being prepared. I might want to underline it. It says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed, and uh, there will be two men in one bed, and the one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And so he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And Lord, again, give us understanding, Lord. Bring clarity and wisdom into this conversation, into this study that comes from you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we read through these final verses, we see that we have 
that we see, um, we see as we have seen in the past that the Pharisees asked Jesus their question. These guys are full of questions, never ending. And, and, and we know that with, with every one of their questions, there's, they're not just genuinely inquisitive, right? They don't really have a teacher, teaching, teachable spirit at this moment. They're, they hate Christ at this point. They don't believe him to be the Messiah. They're, they're jealous of everybody who's following after him. They've already purposed in their hearts to find some way to kill him, to destroy him, to remove him. And, and, and so... With that kind of understanding in mind, that's how we should look at this question once again. And, and instead of answering them in a way that um, uh, they wanted or might expect, Jesus answered in them in a way, always and again now, in a way that dealt with the real problem behind the, 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 what they, the question that they were answering. And in this instance, again, the real problem in their heart was unbelief, okay? Keep that in the back of your mind. And we'll, we'll explain that here in a minute. But the real problem was unbelief. And I love it that God always knows the real problem in our heart. Sometimes that can be very painful, but at least God's willing to do the work and not just expose it and leave us where we're at. He, he exposes the problem and wants to take us into truth, into righteousness. And, and that's God's heart. That's Christ's heart, even here with the, with the Pharisees. And certainly for his disciples who are kind of bystanders and looking into this conversation. So they have unbelief in their heart. In verse 20, we're told that the question that they asked was when the kingdom of God would come. Now, remember at this time, seasonally speaking, it's, it's near the Passover feast. Matter of fact, Christ is coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so it's near the Passover feast. And, 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 and so when we consider that, we understand in part why the Pharisees had asked this question, considering the Jewish people at this time uh, of the year, they lived in, and still to this day, they live with this excited, um, in this excited atmosphere of expectancy um, during the Passover season when they remembered the deliverance, their own deliverance from Egypt. So they were remembering the past, but they were also looking forward to the future. And we know that the Hebrew people, in looking forward to God's plan for them in the future, in regards to the Passover, they longed for another, quote-unquote, Moses who would deliver them from their bondage, who at this time was um, by the hand of the Roman Empire. And Jesus made this final journey to Jerusalem. And as Jesus excuse me, made this final journey to Jerusalem, it had been increasingly clear that many people... Um, we're hoping and, and focus on the possibility of Jesus being this deliverer, right? The one to set us free. And the fact that he was going to Jerusalem at this time excited the people who were following him now all the more. More and more. Crowds greater than it ever had been. And, and, and because the Pharisees were the custodians of the law, they had a right. They had a right to ask Jesus when he thought the kingdom of God would, would appear. But this question the Pharisees had asked, who were hostile towards Jesus, was, was really a challenge. Okay, Like I said, it wasn't just inquisitive. It was a challenge. It was a result of their unbelief and probably even a demand. Not only was this question a challenge, it probably was even a demand for Jesus to either put up and produce the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of God, or to shut up and stop claiming that he was the Messiah. When is the kingdom of God coming? Come on, show us, do it. If you're him, then, then, then perform. You know, that kind of a, a mentality, that kind of an attitude. And, and, and as believers in Jesus Christ, when we think about the coming of God's kingdom for us, it's a little different because events have taken place um, that, that Jesus prophesied here that we have seen as we look back. But, but because of that, when we think about the kingdom of God, we typically 
two things come to our minds. <clears throat> if you've ever studied anything about um, Christ's return and, and what the Bible teaches us in the New Testament. So the first is something that we refer to when we think about the kingdom of God and these two things that come into our minds. The first thing that comes into our mind is an event that we refer to as the rapture of the church, right? Uh, it comes from the, uh, from the Greek word, um, uh, the English word uh, catch um, or to catch up, and it's the, 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 the Greek word, har, or really the Latin word harpizio. It's translated from a Greek word, and, or, or excuse me, the Greek word is harpizio. The Latin word is rapturus. I get that correct. And so that's where we've come up with this word rapture. And there's a whole doctrine built around that. And a lot of people want to dismiss that doctrine lots of times because they say, well, rapture, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, you've you got to do a little bit of, of, of research to see where we come up with that. Nevertheless, um, that's one of the things that we think about when, the king, when, we, when we as believers talk about the kingdom of God coming upon us. Um, the second thing that we think about is an event that um, will take place seven years after the rapture of the church. And at this time, we're told that Christ, Christ will, will make um, a physical return. Uh, with the rapture, we're told that Christ will, will appear in the clouds. So he'll enter into our realm. It'll be as an appearance in the clouds. And, and, and at that time, it says the trumpet will sound in a twinkling of an eye that we, the church, will be caught up together with him. And then we, with him, will go to heaven. He never actually makes a physical return to the earth at that point. However, seven years later, after the rapture of the church, Jesus will make a physical, a literal physical return to the earth. And the Bible teaches us that at that time, Jesus will descend from the heaven. Um, lots of other things will be taking place at that time. And his foot will touch down in Jerusalem. Um, it actually says there's an earthquake and there's a, there's a, a great split that comes forth and a, a river will flow out, all kinds of awesome things. I wish we could go into many, many of those details, but we don't have time and it's not really on point for where we're going this morning. But um, the Bible teaches us that when that happens, Jesus will establish his kingdom here upon this earth. And in doing so, he will rule and reign over every nation, all of the nations, on the earth in, in, in a time that the Bible refers to as the millennial reign for a thousand years. And there's other events that will take place after that. We're not going to talk about those either. I want to, but not today. However, for the Jew, for the Hebrew scholar, for the Pharisees especially, uh, as well as the nation of Israel as a whole, because they, they had this mindset. However, for the Jew in Jesus' day, when they spoke of the kingdom of God or the coming kingdom of God, they were looking at it in a little different light, okay, than what really comes to our mind and what we know to be true today. Um, not that it's something different than what has always been foretold of. They just didn't have complete understanding, uh, the understanding that we have now because of events that have come to pass. And, and so when we think about what they were thinking about or when we think about what they, were, what they believed, we know that um, the Pharisees had asked their question, with this kind of understanding that historically they were referring to a time spoken of in the Old Testament uh, by many prophets, a time when they believed that God would send his Messiah to save his people, to deliver his people in a physical, literal sense from a bondage and bring peace. That was the two key aspects. Okay. In fact, one of the earliest prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah that the religious leaders of that day had clung to, I don't have time to go into all of them, but, but the earliest one given in Scripture is found in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. 
Listen to it. It says this. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now the word Shiloh, it's, it's literally a messianic title given to the Messiah, what means this, the peaceful one. Shiloh means the peaceful one. And the understanding of the religious rulers of Jesus' day in light of this prophecy and others like it is that there would, be, that there would always be a king from the tribe of Judah reigning over Israel until the coming of the Messiah. Okay? So when we read this verse, the main thing that needs to be understood is that the Messiah would come before the scepter ever departed from Jerusalem. And when the scepter, let's understand what that is, and when the scepter is spoken of in this instance, we understand it to, 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 and to know, we understand that it symbolized really national sovereignty. The, scep, the scepter in, uh, um, symbolized national sovereignty and, and the judicial power of God's people. And, and as long as these things were in place, the national sovereignty and the judicial power of God's people, as long as these things were in place, it meant that the Hebrew people could govern themselves, okay? Now, even though the Romans were ruling over Israel at this time, and even though other nations in, his, in the uh, past history up to this point of the nation of Israel um, had ruled over them like the Babylonians and, 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 and the Assyrians, the nation of Israel... And their kings that had reigned over them during these times of captivity had always been allowed a certain amount of authority and judicial power to govern themselves, to govern their own people, albeit they were still subject to these nations that had conquered them. Their power to self-govern had never been fully removed, even though it had been restricted. And, and that's very important when you're talking about the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys who were, like, were so into just the letter of the law, because we can look at it from one point and go, what, what are you referring to? You, you, you guys lost it all back then. But technically speaking, even up to this point that we're reading about now, uh, well, excuse me, not now, uh, a, a, a few years before now, Israel had still maintained some of their own power to self-govern. However... Historically, we know, okay, not only in secular history, but in Jewish history as well, as with the Talmud and from what we read in the Josephus' writings, is that history teaches us that Israel's right to self-govern was finally taken. It was, it was removed from them in 7 AD when the emperor of Rome, in response to one of the Jewish uprisings, one too many, the one that broke the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back, is that, that the emperor of the Roman, in response to one of the Jewish uprisings, set in place Roman procurators, Roman governors throughout all the land. And in doing so, he removed Israel's remaining power to govern themselves, including the most significant one, their right to enact capital punishment. Okay? In fact, the only self-governing the, self the Jews were allowed to keep was in regards to religious matters. That was it. And if there was a capital punishment violation, the Sanhedrin, which was Israel's highest court, they had to defer to one of the Roman procurators, one of the Roman governors. And, and we see this a little bit later on when they condemned Christ to death and he had to go before Pontius Pilate, right? And so the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of this right to govern themselves, 
They covered their head with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, and they declared this, quote-unquote, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. Because they actually thought that the Torah, they actually believed that the word of God had failed. And that God had forsaken his people since the scepter departed from Judah, and they believed that the Messiah had not yet come. That all happened in 7 AD. But what they did not know that we know is that the Messiah, Shiloh, the Prince of Peace, had been sent and that he had come as a baby who was born in Bethlehem 11 years prior. It's awesome. And even though some feared that the Messiah was not going to come, there were many others still who held on to faith and hope, like these Pharisees who were obviously at some, in some manner, in some form, they were still looking for the kingdom of God to come. And so for that, I would give them kudos. Kudos for them for at least looking, not losing hope. They didn't know how or what or why by their understanding of how they had discerned things in, in regards to the Old Testament prophecies. However, they were, looking for the, they were looking for Shiloh. They were looking for the Messiah to be a Savior who would set up the kingdom and deliver them from this Roman oppression, right? They were not looking for a Messiah, a Savior, to save them from their sins and reestablish peace between them and God. That's the sad thing. Primarily because they were prideful. Primarily because they were self-righteous men who believed that they had no need for this kind of Savior. And man, is that not the first aspect of being spiritually prepared? Is setting aside unbelief, setting aside pridefulness, setting aside self-righteousness, and seeing the need for Christ as our Savior. Consequently, because of their pride and self-righteousness, they were unprepared for the coming of the Messiah, who was there with them, right? They were unprepared for the coming of the Messiah, unprepared for the coming of the kingdom of God. And ultimately, it was their pride and their self-righteousness that I would say cemented at this moment their unbelief towards Christ. And this is why Jesus answered them, answered their question in verse 21 and said this to them, that the kingdom of God is within you, Okay? I want to point out, because we live in this new age kind of mindset and thinking in the world that we're in, I want to point out that this, this statement was not some kind of mystical revelation by Christ in some seed form that the kingdom of God is within everyone in a new age kind of way, right? It's in me and it's in you. and, and, and um, it, That's not it. After all, Jesus would have never told the Pharisees who were unbelievers, that the kingdom of God was within them, considering they did not even believe that Jesus was the Messiah whom he was professing to be. But Jesus is the Messiah they were looking for. And he was within them, literally within the midst of the nation. God had sent him in, right? Within them. And so the statement of Jesus was designed to call attention to himself, not to man. You see that? And by it, Jesus was telling them that the kingdom of God they were looking for was right in their midst. The kingdom of God was among them. Why? Because the king, the king, capital K, was among them. The point was the kingdom of God was at hand and their long-awaited Messiah was right there in front of them. And the kingdom of God was in their reach, but they were blinded to these truths to lay hold of it for themselves. So the Pharisees had an understanding of prophecy and the future events that they and they were aware of God's plan. They had a certain awareness of it. However, because they were spiritually blind and only 
looking outwardly at the signs of their times and not looking inwardly for their own spiritual needs, okay? That's another aspect of being spiritually prepared. We first best look inwardly and not just externally. And because they were not looking inwardly at their own spiritual needs, what happened? They could not see God's plan. They could not see it. They could not recognize it, even though it was before them, and so they were not prepared. This is why Jesus... This is what Jesus was referring to when he said at the end of verse 20 this, that the kingdom of God does not come with observation, meaning this outward thing is first inward. It starts with our own need and continues with our own need. We're only right for the future, whether it's tomorrow or eternity, if we're in right relationship with God. The word observation is the Greek word paraareus, and it means to observe by future signs, Okay? And in light of this, we see that Jesus was correcting the wrong understanding of the Pharisees by pointing out that the kingdom of God would not come with this great outward show. And that's very important because just a few weeks from now, about a week from now, maybe a week and a half, two weeks, we know that Jesus will literally ride in on the back of a donkey. Right? And there is this great proclamation of Hosanna, Hosanna, and the highest, and the people were proclaiming him to be his king, but Jesus said it's not going to come with this great out, outward show so that people could predict its arrival like the Pharisees believed it would come. In fact, when Jesus turned to his disciples in verse 22, look, and spoke to them about the coming of God's kingdom, he first pointed out that they would desire to see it, but they would not. They would desire to see even one day of it, but would not. And this was due to the fact that at this time, the nation as a whole would not receive Jesus Christ as their King, as their Messiah. And so Jesus illustrated the fact that the coming of God's kingdom would be a future unexpected thing, even though much warning and prediction about its coming had been given. Had been given. And so in verse 22, he says again to his disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there or do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under the heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. So answering the Pharisees' questions, Jesus once again, as, as has been his custom, then turns to his disciples and he's kind of saying, okay, here's your answer, but guys, let me explain it for you. Let me tell you about God's plan. Don't lose heart. God's still doing great things. Be prepared with this information that I'm giving you. And so Jesus went on and prepared, and he compared the days of Noah, which would have been very familiar for these Jewish men and these followers of Jesus Christ. He compared the days of Noah in verse 26 to the days of the Son of Man, meaning an event we refer to as the second coming of Jesus. And then again in verses 28 through 33, I already read that once, I don't want to do it again, but he made a second comparison to the days of, uh, of when Lot lived in Sodom, saying, so it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, by doing this, Jesus was simply springboarding off of the question that the Pharisees had asked in order to interact, in order to instruct his disciples about being prepared for the coming of the kingdom of God. And the first thing that Jesus said to, be, to prepare them was to warn them, okay? There's a warning in verses 22 and 23. And the warning is to not be obsessed with his return and only be trying to track him down. 
You know, you're going to hear these rumors. Oh, there he is. And you, you, you leave and abandon everything that you've been called to to just go and see if that's him. And you're going here and you're going there. And, you, and you're, you're just, your only thing is to, is to find him, is to see him in that sense. To not be obsessed with it. Remember, it would not be long, as Jesus said in verse 25, before he would suffer and be killed on a cross, raised from the grave and then ascend into heaven. And when that happened, Jesus commanded his disciples to what? To be about the business of finding him after he left? No, he commanded them to be about the business of building his kingdom, making disciples of all nations as, as we and they waited for his return. So being spiritually prepared is doing the work that we've been called to do, the one that's been set before us. Many times this morning I mentioned the good works that God has prepared for us. And God says he's thoroughly equipped us through his word so that we might be walking in them. What are the good works that God has pointed you to? First we must find out what they are and then we must walk in them. Not only has he given us the good work, not only has he prepared us for them, but he says he's thoroughly equipped us. That's the call. Spiritual preparedness is anchored in that. Not only for the life to come, but for the life that we've been given to live today. And this reminder of, of, of making disciples as they waited for his return, this great commission, this reminder is even more appropriate for us as we prepare for Jesus' return. Because, guys, in light of the times that we live in, I think we have so many more reasons to live our lives expectant of Jesus' eminent return. The point is, is we should be looking for Jesus' return. We should. Amen? Yeah. And today, Lord, today's a good day. But at the same time, we should be busy about the work that he's called us to until he comes. Man, I so long to hear when he shows up that, that like, if I'm behind the pulpit, I can't think of anything better except, you know, uh, some other act of service because I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so looking expectantly for Jesus' return is also a motivation for us to be about the, the everyday activities that God's called us to do with his glory and with his kingdom in mind. Hmm. So busy about his work. And this is the main reason for why we should live expectantly of Jesus' return and not just to be consumed with it. There's been so many times I've heard in the past church history where people are like, Jesus is coming on such and such a day. And what does everybody do? They stop living for Christ. You know, they're like, we're just going to sell everything and charge our credit cards all up and we're just going to sit right here until he comes for us. I mean... That's happened over and over again. As, and, and we know now that there's many people who claim to be Jesus Christ, false, antichrist, and, and people have abandoned their complete life and they're just following this, this guy who's leading them astray and there's no service of the Lord going on. But Jesus in verses 23 and 24 also gives two additional reasons for not being consumed about his return in this kind of way and said that there will be many, like I kind of already mentioned, who make false claims saying that he has returned. He's over here. He's over there. And there there will be others who will try to predict when he will return. And these things are foolish, especially in light of the fact that Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 made it clear that, that even though we can know the season of his return, no one knows the day or the hour. Furthermore, when Jesus does return, it won't be an isolated event. Like, oh, he's over in wherever, you know? And you need to go over there and see him because that's where he's at. 
You know, it, it won't be like that. It, 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 as a matter of fact, in verse 24, according to verse 24, it will be like a flash of lightning. Now, we've had a lot of lightning in the last few weeks. And when it lightnings, you know what happens? You can be long, long ways away and tell that there's lightning. Not only because it lights up the sky, but because of the, the, the sound that follows it, right? It, 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 it'll be like lightning in that it will be sudden, because when lightning comes, it'll wham, and it will be exposed for all to see. You're not going to miss it. So continuing with these thoughts, Jesus used two Old Testament events to illustrate the certainty and the suddenness of his coming. Noah and the flood, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, and Lot and the destruction of Sodom, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 19. And in each of these two examples, we see that people were unprepared. The common denominator is that people were unprepared for the judgment that was coming as they engaged in their everyday activities. They were marrying and giving and marrying, and they were buying and they were selling. That kind of idea. And when we consider these comparative illustrations, we realize this, that not, that that. I almost said Not and Loah. <laughs> Noah and Lot, we realize that Noah and Lot lived in days of religious compromise. Wow. Sound a little familiar? Religious compromise. And with widespread moral depravity, much like the times we're living in today. In fact, the days of Noah, in the days of Noah, the population, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the population growth was significant, exponential, lawlessness was on the increase, the earth was given over to violence. And there are many of these same things that we are seeing today. Similarly, as it was in the days of Lot with the unnatural loss of the unnatural lusts of Sodom and Gomorrah, so it is today. Never like it has ever been. And what was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told, was so offensive to God that he had to completely destroy, this, destroy these cities, and not a trace of them was left. Only Lot, two of his daughters, and his wife, briefly, who Jesus reminds us of in verse 32, was, was, was very shortly later destroyed as she looked longingly back for what was. And, um, but Lot and his daughters were saved from God's terrible judgment. As we're about ready to wrap it up, so if the worship team wants to come up, these Guys, these events are brought to our attention because in verses 30 through 36, it describes for us what will occur when Jesus returns to set up his kingdom here on the earth, okay? Specifically, that he will come in judgment to defeat his enemies and establish his kingdom on earth. And, and I wish we could, who wants to stay for three more hours? Okay, Revelation chapter 19, turn there, just kidding. <laughs> but these events are graphically described in Revelation chapter 19 and Revelation chapter 20. Go read it. It's really cool. And as we look at this in regards to preparedness, keep that in mind as you read it, we as believers can take warning from these verses, but I want to I let you know, amen, they don't directly apply to us but only to those who are left behind to face the seven years of tribulation. This is because when Jesus comes to gather us, his church, and takes us to heaven, it'll happen according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, in a moment in a twinkling of the eye. And the point is, is the person who is raptured, you and I who believe in Jesus Christ, we don't need to worry about being on the housetop or being in a field or wanting to get something out of the house. However, 
when the Lord returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation in Matthew chapter 24, in verses 30 and 31, it tells us that it will be preceded by a sign in heaven, exactly what, like what Jesus described in verse 24. And at that time, the Lord will be seen coming in power, coming in glory. And those who have resisted, those who have rebelled, those who have rejected them because of their unbelief will be worried as they will be taken into judgment. So the question I want to end with is, this morning, is are we looking for his return? Are we looking for his return? And do we really want to see him come? And with this question filling, with these questions filling your heart and minds, I want to draw your attention back to verse 33 where Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And this statement was was one that Jesus had spoke to his disciples many, many times in the past. But with this truth, in light of what Jesus speaks here, we are directed to the only place where we can truly be prepared for the coming of the kingdom of God, where we're daily laying down our lives and living for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for these words of encouragement, for these words of truth that prepare us for the future, that give us excitement and hope in the midst of some of the discouragement and the bummers that we face in this life, God, that you're for us, that you're with us, and that you're coming back for us. And Lord, that you're coming today when you're going to rule and reign, and truly, God, like the peace that you place in our hearts, there will be peace among the earth. And Lord, we long for that day. We worship you because of that day. And Lord, we, we, we worship you because of today. We love you, and we know that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? We can worship the Lord together. Don't forget, guys, there's people who are going to be up front that want to pray with you. And so if you're feeling unprepared, if there's things that are going on in your life that are overwhelming and burdensome, come and lay your burdens down and receive prayer this morning at the end of this lost song. There is a truth older than the age.